0: Welcome to Market Matters, our markets podcast on Making Sense, the hub for JP Morgan corporate and investment bank podcasts. In this episode of Market Matters, we'll hear from the market data and positioning intelligence teams within our data assets and alpha group. They'll be talking about key macro, micro, and political themes in the context of our high-frequency trading data and proprietary signals from JP Morgan's markets business.
1: Hi, I'm Edwina Lowe. I'm product specialist in the data intelligence team within the Data Assets & Alpha Group here at JP Morgan. Today I'm joined by Eloise Goulder, head of our wider team, the Data Assets & Alpha Group. Eloise has a wealth of experience in markets and she set up the group and constituent teams including market intelligence, data intelligence, and positioning intelligence. So in addition to focusing on current market dynamics, I'm looking forward to asking her to outline the rationale for the Data Assets & Alpha Group. So, Eloise, thank you so much for being with me here today. Before we dive into current market conditions and your views at this stage, could we take a step back and discuss what your team, the Data Assets and Alpha Group, produces and what you're all trying to achieve?
2: Thanks, Edwina. That's a great question. So, in terms of what we're trying to achieve, we're striving to provide our clients, who are typically risk managers across hedge funds and asset managers, with tactical, in many cases daily, insights on markets and market direction based on the proprietary data sets we have here at JP Morgan. When we speak to clients about what they really want from us, I think they most value the data driven insights rather than simply opinion. They value seeing the unique and proprietary data sets we have available to us here at JP Morgan, including data around positioning. And they want these data points to be explained within the context of the current market and geopolitical landscape. So, for example, I think the most commonly asked questions we've had from clients this year have been, are we there yet? How much has positioning unwound amid the market sell-off, which John Schlegel and I addressed in detail two weeks ago? And also, how much have investors rotated out of the growth factor and into value this year? And how is the retail investor faring this year? And how much have they sold yet? Which I can talk to later. In terms of how our team is structured, we're split into three core groups, as you just mentioned, Edwina. So market intelligence, data intelligence and positioning intelligence. And when put together, we strive to offer that tactical data and positioning driven content our clients so frequently ask for. So that's really a potted backdrop of our team. I hope it provides a bit of context to everything we talk about on these podcasts.
1: Thanks so much, Eloise. That should provide a really helpful backdrop to our listeners. Now, I know you're adamant that our team should avoid behavioural biases and instead stick to our signals and frameworks because I sit next to you and hear you talking about it all the time. But can you explain to the listeners what exactly it is you're trying to avoid when you talk about these biases?
2: Yes. So as we all know, biases are everywhere in human decisions and in data models. So I'm under no illusions that we have the ability to eradicate them. But as a data-driven team, I really think we should be avoiding human or behavioural biases wherever we can. And what I mean by that is if we've developed signals or frameworks that are data-driven, then we need a really good reason not to be following those signals. More generally, I think of behavioural biases creeping into the investment process in two major categories. So one is the ultimate investment decision. For example, are you unwilling to invest in a good opportunity because you feel you've missed out on it rallying already, i.e. mental accounting? Or are you reluctant to make a portfolio change despite new news and evidence supporting that change, i.e. the status quo bias? Or Do you sometimes stop loss too late because you're loss averse? So I think these investment decision biases are relatively well known and I won't go into them in more detail now. But then the other area I think about biases creeping in is in analyst models. So estimate biases in the earnings forecasts before you even make that investment decision. These may involve anchoring earnings growth to last year or to the peer group or failing to look outside the box at the potential for a given company, so anchoring bias. They may involve interpreting positively crafted earnings statements positively, i.e. framing – or assuming that adding greater detail to the forecast makes the thesis more persuasive, even though it's technically less likely at that stage, i.e. the more is more fallacy. The list of biases goes on, but one ramification of these is that in some cases we see companies deliver consistent beats or misses versus consensus estimates on a sequential basis. And we found that a series of earnings beats, for example, is often the result of consensus failing to forecast value-accretive expansion via CapEx or M&A, and that lack of forecast can be due to biases such as anchoring to peers. As a result of all of this, past earnings upgrades can be a supportive lead indicator for future earnings upgrades and outperformance. So we try and capitalise on these biases in our signal from the noise framework, where earnings revisions, for example, are an input to our fundamental signals. So when put together, there are biases that we are explicitly trying to avoid by focusing on our frameworks and our toolkits rather than simply viewpoints. And then there are biases that we're striving to capitalise on within our models, such as anchoring bias via earnings revisions. That's fascinating. Thank you, Eloise.
1: I know the signal from the noise framework is both a market and a single stock timing indicator. So turning to market views, what is the signal from the noise framework currently telling us about US markets?
2: Well, bottom line is our signals are currently relatively supportive of US markets. But let me give you some context. So our signal from the noise framework has two main component parts, the fundamental signals and the positioning signals. And to be positive on US markets, we need either the fundamental or the positioning signals to be supportive. So through most of 2020 and 2021, the signals were supportive. In April 2020, soon after the March Covid lows, the signals flashed by on the basis of the positioning signals, with many positioning metrics looking deeply oversold. And then from July for the next 12 months or so, the signals then flashed by due to the fundamental indicators, with ISM manufacturing data and earnings revisions and commodity prices all rising on a three-month view. But through 2022, however, the signals have generally been in neutral territory with fundamentals gradually deteriorating. ISM manufacturing dropping out in January this year and commodity prices dropping out more recently. And the positioning signals have been rarely kicking in. So what do the signals say today? Well, the fundamental signals are squarely out of buy territory i.e. they're neutral, given this deterioration in macro data that we've seen in recent months. However, the positioning signals have improved over the last couple of weeks. And actually, as of this weekend, they're now in borderline buy territory with about three quarters of those positioning component parts flashing positive. This is a function of volatility falling and several investor types showing light positioning now, but positive momentum. So to sum up, our signal from the noise toolkit is relatively supportive of markets on account of those positioning signals rather than the fundamentals. And it's worth watching this space to see if they improve further from here. Thanks, Eloise. Let's turn to another data set
1: through the retail lens, our data set tracking US retail investor flows and sentiment. This was one of our most requested datasets through 2021, given the pickup in retail volumes in US markets and the January 2021 retail induced short squeeze. So, has this dataset been useful through 2022, or is the US retail activity now much more depressed?
2: Thanks for asking that. So as you mentioned, our Through the Retail Lens dataset is really a combination of two data sources tracking the US retail investor. The first is retail flows at a single stock, but also a sector factor and market level. And we leverage data from our research colleague Peng Cheng and showcase the conclusions each day. The second data set is retail sentiment, as measured from commentary on social media platforms, again at a single stock, but also a sector factor and market level. It's true that US retail volumes have waned a little this year. And indeed, in many cases, we think the US retail investor is sitting on losses this year. For example, our basket of popular retail holdings, JP1BR POP, is down 20% this year. However, the data set has still been useful for a number of reasons. First, we've been able to see the rotation retail have made into commodities and out of tech, i.e. contrary to popular belief that the retail investor is predominantly interested in well-known tech companies, we actually saw quite a sharp shift into commodity sectors such as energy earlier this year. And then second, we've been able to see when retail investors have softened exposures, like in March and May this year, versus when they've held conviction and bought on any dip. And fascinatingly, in the last month or two, the retail investor has been buying modestly across large cap tech and cyclicals and consumer discretionary sectors. And then finally, retail flows are an input to our tactical positioning monitor, which captures positioning and flows across a range of investor types. This is a toolkit that John Schlegel and I discussed on our podcast two weeks ago. So all in all, we continue to see this as a powerful data set.
1: Thanks, Eloise. All extremely interesting. I know we don't have time to discuss our other datasets in detail, such as the very long run Strategic Index Fundamental Toolkit with data back to the 1960s, and our Quest thematic scores reflecting thematic exposure at a single stock level. But do you have any brief comments to say to the audience on our other datasets?
2: I would touch on the Strategic Index Fundamental Toolkit, or SIFT as we know it, which was developed by our colleagues Deepak Maharaj and Frederick Geertz Johnson in the structuring business. As we found the very long run data history back to the early 1960s has been very valuable as we've navigated this period of high inflation i.e. we've had lots of questions from clients wanting to compare this environment with the 1970s, given that inflation hasn't been this high since then. And as such, our SIFT toolkit has allowed us to show that in the 1970s, by far the best performing sector was energy, which almost tripled in performance over that decade, followed by consumer goods, semis and materials, And in fact, the best performing factor then was value, which more than doubled over the decade. And compared to the 1970s and using the same methodology, so far energy has delivered just, and that's just in inverted commas, 55% performance and value just 9%. Of course, there are plenty of reasons why this time it may be different, but I still think this is helpful context.
1: Great. Thank you, Eloise. And finally, do you have any last words for our audience?
2: So I know we've spent a lot of time talking about data sets, which can be quite dry. But to reiterate our key markets messages right now, I would say signal from the noise is tactically now relatively supportive on U.S. markets, which is a function of positioning metrics rather than improving fundamentals. And then the retail investor continues to buy modestly. And our long-run Strategic Index Fundamental Toolkit highlights that to the extent this decade shows similarities with the 1970s, the energy sectors could have further to run. And it's worth putting this into context with our House research view, where our strategists remain positive into year-end, they see around 20% upside for the S&P 500 overall, and they remain particularly constructive on energy markets. Thank you, Eloise.
1: That was a fascinating insight into the team, the Data Assets and Alpha Group, and our mandate, particularly in light of the current market volatility and geopolitical backdrop we we're experiencing. And finally, thank you to our listeners for tuning in. If you'd like to explore our team content further, or indeed get in touch, please take a look at our website, jpmorgan.com forward slash market data intelligence. There you'll have the opportunity to send us a message via the contact us form. And with that, we'll close.
0: Thank you. If you're enjoying this conversation, you can subscribe as well as our other podcasts to stay on top of the latest industry news and trends. Follow JP Morgan's Making Sense on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. The views expressed in this podcast may not necessarily reflect the views of JP Morgan Chase Co. and its affiliates. Together, J.P. Morgan. They are not the product of J.P. Morgan's research department and do not constitute a recommendation, advice, or an offer or a solicitation to buy or sell any security or financial instrument. This podcast is intended for institutional and professional investors only and is not intended for retail investor use. It is provided for information purposes only. Reference products and services in this podcast may not be suitable for you and may not be available in all jurisdictions. JPMorgan may make markets and trade his principal in securities and other asset classes and financial products that may have been discussed. For additional disclaimers and regulatory disclosures, please visit www.jpmorgan.com forward slash disclosures forward slash sales and trading disclaimer.